Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament. Today we'll be narrating from the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. How do we stay true to the Lord? The way to stay true is to keep our eyes on Christ, to remember that this world is not our home and to focus on the fact that Christ will bring everything under His control. Staying true means steadfastly resisting the negative influences of temptation, false teaching, or persecution. It requires perseverance when we're challenged or opposed. Don't lose heart or give up. God promises to give us strength of character. With the Holy Spirit's help, and with the help of fellow believers, you can stay true to the Lord. Now, Paul did not warn the Philippian church of doctrinal errors, but he did address some relational problems. For these uh, two women who have been workers for Christ in the church, their broken relationship was no small matter because many had become believers through their efforts. It's possible to believe in Christ, work hard for His kingdom, and yet have broken relationships with others who are committed to the same cause. But there's no excuse for remaining unreconciled. Do you need to be reconciled to someone today? Well, if you're facing a conflict you can't resolve, don't let the tension build into an explosion. Don't withdraw or resort to cruel power plays. Don't stand idly by and wait for the dispute to resolve itself. Instead, seek the help of those known for peacemaking. Well, let's begin to do that right now as we begin our reading today here in the New Testament. October 3rd, the New Testament, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. Therefore, my, Paul, dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Iodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need, and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. 
I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment I have all I need, and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from His glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now all glory to God our Father, forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you their greetings. And all the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And now, our reading from the Psalms. Psalm 75, verses 1 through 10. We learn here that God will act when He is ready. Children have difficulty grasping the concept of time. It's not time yet is not a reason they easily understand because they only comprehend the present moment. As limited human beings... We can't understand God's perspective about time. We want everything now, unaware that God's timing is better. When God is ready, He will do what needs to be done, not what we would like Him to do. And we may be as impatient as children sometimes, but we must not doubt the wisdom of God's timing. Wait for God to reveal His plan. Don't take matters into your own hands. Also, we'll read here about the cup of wine representing God's judgment that's coming against the wicked. God will pour out His fury on His enemies, and they will be forced to drink it. Drinking the cup of God's judgment is a picture used frequently in Scripture. It gives the impression of taking a dose of one's own medicine. To drink it down to the dregs means to be punished completely. God will have the last word. He will decide the final outcome settling all matters that concern both the wicked and the godly. The former will eventually experience his judgment. The latter will experience his faithful love. So no matter how dark the days you face, make it your continual practice to acknowledge God's sovereignty over your world. Tell him regularly how grateful you are that he has the final word. Psalm 75, verses 1 through 10. For the choir director, a psalm of Asaph, a song to be sung to the tune, Do Not Destroy. We thank you, O God. We give thanks because you are near. People everywhere tell of your wonderful deeds. God says, At the time I have planned, I will bring justice against the wicked. When the earth quakes and its people live in turmoil, I am the one who keeps its foundations firm. Interlude. I warned the proud, stop your boasting. I told the wicked, don't raise your fists. 
Don't raise your fists in defiance of the heavens, or speak with such arrogance. For no one on earth, from east or west, or even from the wilderness, should raise a defiant fist. It is God alone who judges. He decides who will rise and who will fall. For the Lord holds a cup in His hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours out the wine in judgment, and all the wicked must drink it, draining it to the dregs. But as for me, I will always proclaim what God has done. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob, for God says, I will break the strength of the wicked, but I will increase the power of the godly. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 through 20. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. For the Lord will be displeased with you and will turn his anger away from them. Don't fret because of evildoers. Don't envy the wicked. For evil people have no future. The light of the wicked will be snuffed out. The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. I hope you're well. Just a couple upcoming things. First of all, um, we've been talking about it, but we've got community groups going on right now, so we've got some information in the back if that's something you're interested in. Um, they happen basically all throughout the week, I think every weekday except for Tuesday, I believe. And so all the information's in the back. In the next couple weeks, I plan on giving kind of a, pro, a short presentation at the beginning of the gathering, uh, just about where we're headed, where we're at. I think sometimes we forget we've only been a We've only been gathering for about 15 months now, so we're still a very young church, and um, we're, we're trying to pray through and just ask God what He's calling us to, um, where we're headed. Um, one of the things we might be, we're praying through, we might be relocating at some point, and so um, we're trying to pray through, maybe get closer to the town center and, uh, and all these sorts of things. And so if you could just be praying for us and um, the leaders and the members and everyone who serves, just that God would give us wisdom. There's also opportunities to maybe start a second totally separate um, gathering um, focused more on the refuge guys down in Franklin's and Hilltop area. There's some churches that want to partner um, with us down there to do ministry. There's dozens of, of guys. There's a handful of guys in here right now that um, become really dear to me, good, close, I mean, becoming closer and closer friends. These guys are awesome. And um, I appreciate them, and I'm excited for maybe what God's going to call them to do in the Franklinton Hilltop area. So there's a lot of go- there's a lot going on, and so next week or the week after, I'll give kind of a short presentation about where we're headed. Um, you know how, what the budget looks like, what, what your what your giving is going towards, what um, where we're headed. So you can look forward to that. And we got two weeks left, in our, including this week in our series that we titled Living Sacrifice. And then we're going to spend six weeks going through Luke 15, um, the whole story of the prodigal. And so I'm really excited uh, for that. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited for the, the next two weeks as well. So we've been looking at Romans 12 through 15. 
Um, what, what we've said is this comes right after Romans 1 through 11, where, where Paul um, basically details what Christians believe theologically about God. And then 12 through 15 is kind of like in response to, to that belief, this is how you should live. This is how you should respond to God. Practically, this is what it means for you. And so last week we started in Romans 14, which was all about um, what's called Christian liberty. And, and how to use your freedom for the glory of God and not for the harm of others. And so if you weren't here, I, uh, I would highly encourage you to just kind of go online. We've got the sermon there. Well, actually not yet, but it'll be there in the next couple of days. And so that'll give you some context for, for the teaching this morning. But today's really a part two to that, if you will. I mean, all, all of chapter uh, 14 in Romans is really addressing this issue of Christian liberty. And so let's jump in. So this morning we're looking at Romans 14, uh, 13 through 23. And it says this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. And then verse 23 says, For But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so what we have to remember, first off, is that this is a difficult text, okay? Um, it's easy for us to insert our own story into this text. It's easy for us to take from this what we want to take, and then just leave the rest. And so, and so hopefully um, you understand what I'm saying. So a little disclaimer is this. I've tried to be faithful um, to the scriptures and review a handful of respectable orthodox theologians. But ultimately I have 30, 40 minutes to, to unpack this. And so if this is something that you wrestle with, if there's something said this morning that, kinda, that kind of um, takes you off guard or, or you have more questions, I, I'd love to answer those questions the best I can to refer to you. Um, some some resources that you can look on your own, okay? But the, there's, we're going to kind of unpack three things, and I'm taking this from Douglas Moo, who's a who's a theologian. And and first off, what we see here is a is warning from Paul to us about stumbling blocks. And so verse 13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So Paul just keeps on hammering at this, right? He keeps on hammering at this idea of letting, like he tells us, don't pass judgment on one another. And I think, first off, and, and what, we kind of, what we kind of ran into, even in our community group this week, is I think we have to stop here but because we have to define our terms. I think we need to unpack exactly what we're talking about. And so, because, because listen, even, even in, in our culture, even this idea of judgment or judging gets abused, 
And so what will happen is this. Anytime anybody starts calling anything sin, you've got other folks that are like, don't judge me, you know? Don't be judging, man. Don't be calling me a sinner or I'm wrong or, or that sort of thing. Hey, I thought Christians were supposed to love, right? You know, don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. Don't tell me I shouldn't do certain things. And then, and then we'll hear the famous line, gosh, you hypocrites, right? And so listen, it, it would be devastating and it would be very wrong for us to read this text and walk away with, well, Paul tells me not to judge, so therefore I have no right to call sin what it is, sin. And so if we do that, what we're left with is some sort of relativism, some sort of... Um, relativistic morality that just says, do whatever you want. Human experience is our highest ideal. So, so sister, brother, do whatever your heart desires. Do whatever your heart desires. And, and, and to fall into this error would be explicitly, it would be, it would be detrimental. It would be explicitly unbiblical. And so this is not what Paul's saying. So what does Paul mean by judging? Well, let's start with this. So, so the Oxford English Dictionary uh, says this. It says, judgmental means one, of or concerning the use of judgment. That doesn't help us much. Two, having an excessively critical point of view. And so to add to this, theologian Douglas Moo says, the exhortation sums up verses 1 through 12 that we talked about last week while preparing for the new focus in verses 13 through 23. Both the strong Christian and the weak Christian, Paul has made clear, are to stop standing in judgment over one another. For God has accepted each one, and it is to their master, the Lord, who has redeemed them, and not to any fellow servant, that they are answerable. So past judgment here in the Greek um, is the word krino, which means to judge, consider, separate, to evaluate, to hold a view, to make a legal decision, to condemn, to rule over. And so our text says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Moo continues, he says, in the second half of the verse, however, Paul turns to the strong in faith, using a play on the word krino to forge his transition. And so in the first part of the verse, this verb means to condemn. In the second half, however, where the word decide is used, it means to determine, to decide. So rather than judging or condemning others, the strong in faith are to judge, to decide not to place a a stumbling block or cause of offense before their fellow believers. Stumbling block translates a word that refers to that which causes a person to trip or to stumble. I know this is all, this is a lot at once. And and hopefully we get what Paul is saying here. And so does this mean that we're free to do whatever we wish? Well, biblically, no. No. That would be to take the text completely out of context. Paul is telling us to take the higher road, if you will. Um, The countercultural road. The most difficult way. But it's a beautiful way. In essence, he's saying, hey, instead of judging your brother or sister, strong person, place no stumbling block in their path. What does this mean? R.C. Sproul says, If my brother thinks that drinking wine is a sin, how could I make him sin? How could I make him stumble? 
I could make him stumble by doing everything in my power to encourage him to drink wine. If I try to get him to drink wine when he thinks it's wrong to drink wine, I'm really trying to persuade him to sin. It's one thing for me to try to get him to do something that he believes is evil. It's another for me to have a discussion with him. And again, I don't know how many times I can say this because we've said this a lot in regards to this text, but the only way this will ever end well for any of us is if we're in community with one another. Because if we're in community, then our lives aren't hidden to one another. And I think some of us don't want to be in community. Why? Because we want to stay hidden. So if this will ever end well, it means that one, we must be cognizant and intentional about sharing and caring and serving in one another's weaknesses. Two, it means we cannot have a culture of secrecy. We can't have a culture of secrecy. So let's unpack this a little bit more. What does moralism what does moralism produce? Just the idea of being better and being good and, and pursuing a better version of yourself. What does moralism produce? Let's just, let's just use a, an example. So let's just say you saw someone abusing any sort of substance or you saw someone watching a movie that you would disapprove of and all kinds of stuff. And, and, and we just, what if all of us just saw that and we said, well, you know what? You're taking advantage of that thing and doggone it. Because people that are moralists use words like that. You know, oh golly gee whiz, um, we're shutting it all down. Let's put this rule here. Let's put this rule here. Let's, um, let's add this rule over here. And all know they'll pro- they might slip up down here in the future. So let's, let's stamp on another rule down there. And what ends up happening in that is that, you, is that we or you become judge, jury, and executioner. And instead of pointing people to the only one who can change them, instead of pointing people to the only one who can save them, instead of pointing folks to the beauty and wonder and awe that is the gospel, you focus all of their attention on their behavior. And listen, if all you ever do is focus your attention your attention to your behavior, then you will become a fantastic actor. You'll become a fantastic actor. Like, like, how are you doing, bro? Oh, my life is fantastic. I mean, my kids are great. Oh my goodness. And what happened? You know, life couldn't be any better. And so people walk around with these clown-like smiles, little skip in their step. You know, everything's great. My life is wonderful. But what's going on in their head is, oh my gosh, I hate my life. If murder was legal, my kids, oh my goodness. Right? And, and what am I doing? Why am I doing it? I, don't, I have no idea why I'm doing what I'm doing. I don't even know where I'm going. I don't even know why I'm going there. I don't know why, I'm, why I go to church or why I work or, or what my purpose in life is. I'm just lost. And so we have the external of this, this facade of perfection and, and, and goodness and morality, but in the inside there's all these questions and there's all this uh, just confusion. And so if all we ever do is focus on our behavior, if all we ever do is try to fix people and we don't point them to the sovereign, we don't point them to the all-knowing, to the all-encompassing Lord of Lords. 
if we never point people to Jesus, then we'll have a culture of people that are great actors. But in secret, are doing all sorts of, you know, sinful things. And telling, listen, doing all sorts of sinful things and and struggling things, and listen, telling no one. Telling no one. Wrestling through that with no one. Feeling like, man, if I were to tell my Christian brother or sister, they would banish me. They would, they would just disown me. They would look at me differently. And church, it's in those moments that we should be the best Christians. Because if someone comes to you and there's tears in their eyes and, and they're struggling and they're fighting, that's grace. Unbelievers don't fight like that. Unregenerate people don't have convictions like that. The very fact, if that's you, the very fact that you're wrestling, the very fact that you're fighting, the very fact that you're thinking about God is evidence that God loves you. It's evidence that God's inviting you towards himself. It's evidence that you are in fact a Christian. Praise God for that. Now, if you come face to face with God in, in, in God's word and your heart posture is just, you know, I could care less. Or if your heart posture is just, I, I don't, yeah, I see what it says or I see um, God's command, but I'm just going to do what I want to do. And that's a different story, right? That's evidence that there isn't repentance. That's evidence that what there is, is there's, there's obvious unbelief in you. But if you're wrestling, if you're fighting, this should be a safe place. The church of Christ should be a safe place. God's family needs to be a safe place. Are you tracking with me? Yeah. We on the same page? So let's move on. We spent a lot of time on that first verse. So secondly, um, Paul just kind of brings us with, he presents this idea that nothing is unclean. And so he says this in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. But, but what, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. In response to this text, Sproul says, If a man believes something is unclean, then it becomes unclean for him. But only because he believes it to be. Not because in and of itself it is unclean. Paul's not saying that the stronger brother must be bound by the religious scruples of the weaker brother. Though the stronger brother is to bend over backwards not to offend or to hurt the weaker brother. The stronger brother is not to allow the weaker brother to exercise moral tyranny over the church. Again, if you're kind of like, what does this all mean? Um, You can go back and listen to what we talked about last week. But here, when Paul says nothing is unclean, we have to remember that what he has in mind is eating eating meat. What, what, what does that mean? What, what are you talking about? Well, because in the, that's the context of this discussion. The Jews took this very seriously because many believed that if you were to eat meat that was used in ceremonial worship to false gods, that you in turn spiritually would be unclean before holy, the holy God of the Bible. And so Paul is saying this scandalous thing to their culture. He's saying that no, it's not true. It's not true at all. Unless in your heart you believe that to be true. 
If your conscience will not allow you to do something, then don't do it. That's what he's saying. But we have to be careful because we can apply this to circumstances where the Bible has not forbid us from engaging or not engaging in certain activities. This isn't applicable to everything, but it is applicable to the areas of the Bible that there's a mystery. To the areas of the Bible where the the scriptures don't forbid us and they don't command us. Okay? Sproul continues, Take the matter of circumcision. In the early stages of his ministry, Paul saw no great significance in circumcision. And if people wanted to be circumcised out of mere tradition or family custom, he'd circumcise them. Then the Judaizers came into the church and insisted that the circumcision was an absolute requirement for every Christian. At that point, Paul stood up to the weaker brothers, the Judaizers, and said that he would refuse to circumcise altogether because they were trying to take their scruples, take their argument, take their little, their little you know, idea, issue, and make it a binding law upon the whole community. That's what we have to guard jealously against in our community. So again, I hope you're tracking with Paul. There's nothing wrong with individual convictions. I encourage that. Praise the Lord for your convictions. There's nothing wrong with religious tradition. There's nothing wrong with ceremony. But when we take something that God has not explicitly forbid us, when we major on something that God hasn't majored on, when we miss the forest for the trees, if you will, we must address that. We must have a conversation about that. Because our Trinitarian God is the person in which we worship. We come to know God through what the scriptures say. And as pastors, as leaders, as churches, as Christians, we must not emphasize things that God himself does not emphasize. Conversely, right, we must emphasize the things that God does emphasize. And so this is not, this is not taking the Bible and God less serious. It's taking God and the Bible much, much more serious. God and his scriptures supersedes tradition or ceremony or conviction. <clears throat> so Christian reflection, us thinking about God, us contemplating about morality, us you know, going before the Lord. Those things are necessary, but we must, also, we must always worship God first. We, we must come to his scriptures and ask the Lord to line our convictions with what the Bible teaches. Our own thoughts about reality are oftentimes swayed by our own sin nature, by our own fleshly desires, by our own upbringing, by our own story. 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. I love verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness in the Greek means to put right with. 
It means religious observance. It means charity. It means a status of legal rectitude that satisfies the moral requirements of God's character. And so a question for us would be, are you focused more on the behavioral act or on the person behind that act? Are you focused on fixing people's behavior more than you're focused on the condition of their heart and their soul? Because I don't know if you noticed, but there are a lot of non-Christians that are better than you and I, that are nicer than you and I. And so if all we do is focus on behavior, we miss the deeper concerns. We miss the deeper concerns. So what about our righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit that this text talks about? Well, what we know is that the Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity and Acts calls the Holy Spirit the helper. And so the Holy Spirit's the one who convicts us. The Holy Spirit's the one who empowers us. The Holy Spirit's the one who encourages us. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit's the one that regenerates us, that saves us, where we become Christ's sons and daughters, where we're welcomed and we're adopted into his family. So is our righteousness, peace, and joy found in God, or are we trying to find joy, peace, and righteousness in our works? Are we trying to find joy, peace, and righteousness because of our behaviors? Because let me tell you, I think that's what we go to more easily. That's our bent, is is self-righteousness. I earned this. I'm going to put God in my debt. I'm good. They're not. And that's an endless pursuit. That's a fruitless pursuit. Why? Because ultimately, if you're attempting to fix you, if you think you can muster up the right amount of willpower, if you think you can muster up the, the right amount of courage, the right amount of religious prowess, then you don't understand the gospel. And ultimately, you're attempting to be the Lord of your life. You're attempting to be the Lord of your life by by sheer religious observance. And it'll never work. What you'll do is you'll turn into a great actor. You might get really good at a few areas, but there's going to be other secret sins in, in, in areas that you struggle with that you neglect. Because your willpower, your might, your courage can't fix that on its own. And so there will be deep sins in your life. There'll be, there'll be insecurities. There'll be fears. There'll be, there'll be doubts. There'll be unbelief that you'll never be able to address on your own. Because you can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you and make you right before a holy, loving, and just God. And so listen, what we have to remind ourselves, and not depressingly, but that we're not the point. That you're not the victor of sin in your life. That if you understand this, you'll be able to... See, if we understand this, we'll be able to confess our sins in community group. Why? Because we don't need to be seen as perfect. Because we know that Jesus took that from us. We know that that we can confess and repent because we know that ultimately the only person who can make us whole is Christ. And so I know that the more honest I get, the more transparent I can get, the more often I repent, 
what that will produce is, is the more that if I do all those things, the more like Christ I'll become. So I don't want to make much of me. I want to make much of Jesus. And that should be, that should be what we pursue for all of us. And so lastly, the last point, Paul kind of brings up this idea starting in verse 21. He says, don't do anything to cause the fellow believer to stumble. So the text says, everything is indeed clean, which would have been scandalous in this context. He says, everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So this has been a constant reoccurring theme in Romans. In this section in particular. Love your neighbor. Defer to your neighbor. Serve your neighbor. Lay down your liberties at times for the sake of your neighbor. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So stronger brother or sister, wherever you are, you need to consider those with whom you find yourself with. And what I've heard and what I've even said... (laughs) Um, is people will say, well, I mean, I'm not supposed to care what people think about me, right? It only matters what God thinks about me. And we spiritualize that. Again, this is missing the forest for the trees. This, we take a biblical concept and begin using it for our own personal benefit to the potential detriment of our neighbor. And so, yes, of course, you're supposed to find your identity in God and acceptance in Christ, and not in other people. But that has nothing to do with Christian liberty. That has nothing to do with this idea. Paul clearly teaches that the strong person should sacrifice his or her liberties for the sake of the weaker person when the situation is relevant, when it comes to things that that the Bible doesn't forbid us or condemn us or command us to do. Verse 21 says, It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Remember, it's not unclean to do those things. But that doesn't mean there aren't times where it's prudent and wise to forego your liberty for the sake of another. 22, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. To this, Sproul says, do you see what he's saying? Don't be running around creating a problem with people who have scruples or concerns about minor details. It's between you and God. If you want to drink wine, it's between you and God. Drink wine to the glory of God. Eat meat to the glory of God. But don't let that become a matter of injuring other people. It would be wrong for me to exercise my liberty in such a way as to hurt people's feelings. And lastly, verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. To this, Sproul says, we should strive to get our consciences in line with the word of God and continually seek to refine our own moral codes to bring them into conformity to the mind of Christ so that we don't have this problem of not knowing what God approves and what God forbids. 
ultimately the mark of a true Christian, the things that we should be constantly doing, the, the evidence in our life that we are in fact Christians is, is continual repentance and continual faith in God. Am I repenting? Am I repenting of my sin today and am I putting my faith in Christ? Tomorrow, am I repenting of my sin and am I putting my faith in God? Next week, am I repenting of my sin and am I putting my faith in Christ? Am I meditating on God's word and asking him to give me insight on the areas of my life that I may be erring, that I may be faulting? Are there areas of my life that I'm refusing to surrender to God's will? Or God's command, I guess is a better way to say that. So real quick, I've got a whole section on this. I think all I need to say is if you've made commitments for a season to not do certain activities, don't do it. You know, if, if you're a part of a mission, or I know, I know there's some really strict rules in the refuge ministries in particular, but if, you're, if you join a Christian school or something, and you're asked to not engage in certain activities for a period of time, and they're not necessarily things the Bible forbids, if you were to engage in those, it's a sin, not necessarily because that behavior is a sin, but because you're lying at that point. And so I'll give you an example. A, a couple years ago, I overheard um, a seminary professor that I really respect. And um, somebody asked him, he was doing like a Q&A, and somebody asked him, like, do you drink alcohol? And his answer was, no, I don't, because the seminary asked me not to if I were to come on the faculty. And so he said, Biblically, I don't think it would be a sin to partake in a glass of wine, but it would be a sin for me to because I made the commitment that I wouldn't if I came on the faculty. Does that make sense? And so we have to take that into consideration as well. And so ultimately, my hope, as, as we kind of summarize, we kind of end Romans 14, I hope that's been, this has been enlightening and helpful. This is a difficult text. You don't hear a lot of pastors teach on this text. But much much more Importantly, I hope that we see the gospel implications to this. We worship God. Our identity is rooted in who God is and what God's done. From, from that, our worship is formed. From that, our relationship with other people is formed. From that, we can be used for God. We can be used for his purposes. And we can be used for his glory. And so ultimately, this isn't about moral improvement or behavior modification. This is about God redeeming his people to himself through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So what does that look, you know, so what, is, what does it look like to have life now with God under God's rule? How do we spread this Jesus-centered gospel with a posture of humility, truth, love, and grace, modeling to others with our confession, with our words, with our actions. That our posture isn't, you know, hey, I earned this, or hey, I'm good and you're not, or hey, you know, I've, I'm a good, you know, I've, I've done all these religious activities and that makes me righteous before God. It's, it's, no, I didn't earn this. I'm not the good one. You know, God saved me. God loves me. God loves you. It's all grace. That's good news for us. So my hope this morning is that you would repent of your sin, which just means to turn, change. Go from one way of thinking to completely the opposite. I, I, I worship myself to I worship God. I worship Christ. My hope is that you would repent of your sin. My hope this morning is that you would put your faith in Jesus. I believe that you are who you said you are, that you're the Son of God, and I want to line my life up with that truth.
My hope this morning is that you would seek Jesus, that you'd follow his ways. My hope this morning is that we would all become what Romans 12.1 says, that we'd all become these living sacrifices for God's glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Lord, you've been so gracious to us because we don't, like if we understand the Bible correctly, we don't earn our salvation. That's every other religion. Just mankind just you know, work in their way painfully up the steepest slope in order to attain enlightenment or, or glory or whatever, nirvana. Christianity is God coming down and doing everything that needed to be done for our redemption. I pray that we wouldn't become Christians to try to earn anything. We would become Christians in response to you. You loved us. You accepted us. And so our response is humility. Our response is faith. Our response is repentance. Our response is praise God that I didn't get what I deserve because what I deserve is death. But in Christ, if I put my faith in Christ, I'm welcomed into his family. And friends, what I want you to, as as your eyes are closed, what I want you to just think about is is God doesn't just put up with you. If you put your faith in him, you are adopted into his family. He calls you son and he calls you daughter. He loves you. He welcomes you in. Just like Luke 15 that we're going to be looking at, he, he runs after you even when you've been a complete moron. He says, you've come home. I welcome you. So Lord, I just pray that you do something in each of our lives, that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would, you would save us, you would convict us, you would heal us. That you would take these dry bones that you put, you give it flesh and life and joy. That where we're struggling, we would this would be a safe place to wrestle through those things. This isn't about religious observance. This isn't about a set of rules. This is about a relationship with a living God. And we respond to you in faith. We respond to you by turning from us and turning to you. So be glorified and be praised. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about the Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.